Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. Glad to have you back for week four of our Renewal and Rebirth theme. Also by now, essentially a New Year celebration theme. We've spent time in various parts of the ancient world, tracing celebrations involving our theme in Babylon, Greece, Rome, Egypt, China, and India. So now it's time to look at our theme as it appears in the United States and make some connections. The obvious starting point for this is the date. In the various celebrations we've explored thus far, only one took place on January 1st. More commonly, they were on or around the vernal equinox and the beginning of spring. Of course, there are many variations spanning different calendars, regions, religions, and other factors. So what factors place New Year's on January 1st in the Gregorian calendar we use today? For that, we have to go back to ancient Rome and a topic that I left out of the episode earlier this month. In its initial form, the Roman calendar had 10 months, with March 1st being the start of the year. This original arrangement can still be seen when looking at the months we have today, specifically their names. First, think of all 12 months. The last four have something in common that sets them apart from the rest. Do you know what it is? All four end in B-E-R. None of the others do. That's because all of the others were given names based primarily on gods or goddesses, with April as the exception. March, known to them as Martius, was named for Mars, so named because that time of the year was when military campaigns would resume. May, known as Mayas, was named for the goddess Maya, a goddess of earth and spring, among others. June, or Unius, was named for Juno. A quick side note, the ancient Romans did not have the letter J, which is why June was known as Unius and not Junius. J wasn't introduced into the alphabet until much later. Back to the months. April, or Aprilis, isn't named for a god or goddess. Rather, it comes from the Latin word aperio, which translates as top open which makes sense, given that this is the time of year when blooms open in springtime. July was first known as Quintilis, meaning sixth, but was later changed to July to honor Julius Caesar in 44 BCE. Similarly, August was known as Sextilis, or seventh, before being renamed August in honor of Augustus in 8 BCE. You notice that the last two were originally numbers. They weren't the only ones. The remaining months September, October, November, and December were and still are based on their order in the calendar. You can see this by looking at what comes before B-E-R in each name. For example, September was originally the seventh month. In Latin, septum means seven. There was no particularly special meaning to the name. It was simply based on the fact that September was the seventh month. And unlike July and August, it was never changed. 
October was named the same, with octo meaning eight in Latin. November has novem, which means nine, and decem in December means ten. Each one named for its position in the calendar and unchanged after all this time. However, you may notice that there's something off. They're the ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth months for us, yet are named as seventh through tenth. This has roots in the fact that, for a time, there were no winter months. For the months we know as January and February, things like military campaigns were on hold. The addition of the two months is credited to the legendary Roman king Numa Pompilius, who is said to have reigned from 715 to 673 BCE as the first successor of Romulus. Among the things attributed to him, we find the calendar reform with added January and February, Januarius and Februarius, respectively, to the Roman calendar. January was named after Janus, the god of beginnings and transitions. February got its name from a Roman festival called Februa. He didn't add them to the beginning of the calendar, though. Originally, they were the 11th and 12th months of the year. We don't really know at what point this was changed, but it was sometime prior to 153 BCE when January 1st became the official date to inaugurate new consuls. It was at this time that the date also became associated with the new year. The ancient Romans had initially dated years based on the consulships instead of a sequential number as we do now. So when January 1st became the day to inaugurate consuls, it also became the date of the new year. That said, even though this occurred in 153, that doesn't mean everyone adopted it at the same time. For many, March continued to be celebrated as the beginning of the new year. The shift to the January 1st date is something that happened over time and with no known year that we can definitively say was the year it became officially adopted by all Romans. So that gives us the calendar we have today with the January 1st New Year. It also explains how the last four months in the year were named by their position in the calendar, but are no longer in those positions. How the seventh month is now the ninth, the eighth is the tenth, the ninth is the eleventh, and the tenth is the twelfth. Attempts were made by later rulers to change them, but none stuck as July and August did. There is still a calendar issue to address. One I believe I've mentioned before. Under the Julian calendar, there was a calculation error that caused a slow drift away from the original days. This included a drift away from the January 1st, originally labeled as New Year's Day. This wasn't corrected until 1582 CE, when Pope Gregory XIII found the drift to be entirely unacceptable and created his own calendar the Gregorian calendar, which we use today in the United States and is widely used around the world. To fix the issue caused by the Julian calendar's error, 10 days were deleted. This brought the calendar back to where it was supposed to be, notably realigning Easter and Christmas closer to the vernal equinox and winter solstice as they had originally been. Other calculations were involved with these holidays and their dates as well, more relevant to our topic today is that this Gregorian calendar brought the January 1st New Year date back to where it was prior to the Julian calendar's error. That said, the adoption of this calendar wasn't immediate. Catholic countries were quick to adopt it, 
which makes sense given that Gregory XIII was the Pope when he instituted the calendar. Elsewhere, adoption was a more gradual process. Those Protestants we've talked about before certainly weren't quick to adopt it. Looking at a direct connection to the United States, the British didn't adopt the calendar until well after their arrival here. The British and their colonies were still celebrating a new year on March 25th until the year 1572. This change was brought about by the Calendar New Style Act of 1750. Another name for it is Chesterfield's Act, from the name of Lord Chesterfield who introduced it into Parliament. Yet another name is the British Calendar Act of 1751, a name used in America. The act came about as many people in England and elsewhere in Europe were using January 1st to begin the legal and common year, while England itself was still using the March 25th date. As you can imagine, this introduced complications that were best resolved by adopting the Gregorian calendar. Interestingly, despite the fact that the act was intended to bring about the adoption of the widely used Gregorian calendar, Pope Gregory XIII's name does not appear because they wanted to avoid any recognition of the Pope's authority. Instead, they introduced the calendar without a name, yet identical to the Gregorian calendar. There's a lot to this act and the impact it had, but I don't want to get too far from our theme, or at least any more than I already have, so I'm not going to go into all those details today. Definitely another time, though. For today, just know that the act was introduced to bring Great Britain and the British Empire into the use of the Gregorian calendar. This included America and widely established the January 1st date for New Year's Day. So you know now how we ended up with a January 1st New Year's Day. The inauguration of Roman consuls on the first day of the month named after Janus, god of beginnings and transitions. We definitely can't deny the enduring influence the ancient Romans had and continue to have. So now we've arrived in the United States with the new year we all know. So let's talk about how we celebrate and what symbolism we can find regarding our theme. First is New Year's Eve, of course. For many, it's just another day during the daytime hours. Perhaps some are getting ready to host a party or go to a party. Others may be planning to go to Times Square for the big celebration. And others may just plan to stay in, either planning to celebrate on their own, or even go to bed without waiting for midnight. However one chooses to celebrate, there are some traditions that are a major part of our New Year's Eve. Of course, we have fireworks. Very widespread in public celebrations and private residences, in places that allow them. Having toasts to New Year's gone by and to the New Year to come. We have the song, Auld Lang Syne. The song is of Scottish origin and is attributed to a man named Robert Burns in 1788, though it's of some debate whether or not the song we know today is exactly what he had in mind. The title seems to have several possible translations, though they all convey roughly the same idea. A more direct translation is Old Long Since, but another common one is Days Gone By, and other more indirect versions that emerged with the nature of our English language and how we structure words. Burns originally said he transcribed it from an old man singing, though it's clear some of his own artistry is definitely present. While it has worldwide popularity, our use for it at New Year's can be traced back to Canadian-American musician Guy Lombardo. 
He and his band performed at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City on New Year's Eve of 1929. It was broadcast on two different stations. Leading up to midnight Eastern Time, it was on CBS Radio. After midnight, it moved to NBC Radio. For the transition time, Lombardo decided to perform a song he heard from Scottish immigrants while in Ontario. That song? Auld Lang Syne. Hollywood picked it up from there, inserting it into movies when there was a New Year's Eve scene. So culturally, the song was emerging in a variety of places, which kept it around long after other things in the early 1900s faded away. There were other influences outside Hollywood, of course, but that was a big one. Then there's the kissing at midnight tradition. It's unclear where that one came from, but German immigrants seem to be the likely origin. The first recorded kissing at midnight comes from a New York Times article on January 3, 1863, and references the German immigrant community. As time went on, the immigrant community and the tradition spread across the country. Along with it was a German and English folklore that the first person encountered in the new year, and the nature of said encounter, would set the tone for the year. A kiss seems a pretty good way to set that stage. And there you find the recurrent theme of setting the stage for the year. It takes so many different forms with the same goal. Finally, there's the ball drop. The big one in Times Square and more local ones as well. Georgia, for example, has a peach drop. What's kind of funny, at least to me, is when two ball drops are shown side by side on local broadcasts, be it between different states or Times Square and the state you're in, but those two ball drops just aren't quite in sync and hit midnight just a little bit off from each other. I find it funny. Anyway, the origin of these ball drops is that they were originally timekeepers, simply called a time ball. The origins of these time balls go all the way back to ancient Greece. The more modern and direct influence is found in early 1800s England. The ball was designed to count time as it went up and then dropped. At 12.55, the ball would be raised halfway, and then at 12.58, it would reach the top, and then at 1300, or 1 p.m., it would drop down the pole. The purpose was to help sailors accurately calculate their longitude to safely and accurately navigate the oceans. Time is very important for that purpose, and they didn't have the many ways to keep time as we do now. The device spread worldwide because it proved so useful to sailors who no longer had to come ashore to get the time. Of course, these largely fell out of use as new advancements emerged, notably the telegraph. A few places still use them for the original purpose, but now we know them for New Year's Eve. That tradition began in 1907 at Times Square as a replacement for fireworks which had been banned. It was inspired by the Western Union Telegraph's time ball, which, of course, had been inspired by the originals. However, when the 700-pound Times Square ball was constructed and covered in 125-watt light bulbs, they opted to change how it worked and have time marked by the landing rather than the moment it was dropped. As you might imagine, given the modern popularity, this new display was a huge success. The two uses of the time ball did overlap until around 1920 when things like radios and clocks made it obsolete. 
As I said, though, some of them are still around, but mostly everyone knows them from the now worldwide ball drops that started on that New Year's Eve in Times Square. So that's our New Year's Eve celebration, primarily to welcome the new year with some traditions that have interesting origins and meanings, even if those origins and meanings aren't so widely known today. So now for New Year's Day. Parades are a huge tradition. Perhaps the biggest one to us, which I've watched many times, is the Pasadena Tournament of Roses Parade. Aside from being in the middle of winter, I couldn't find out why exactly January 1st was chosen, though I did find why it's moved to January 2nd when the 1st is on a Sunday. In 1893, it was decided to move the parade in order to avoid disturbing horses outside church services. The Valley Hunt Club started the parade in 1890 when Professor Charles F. Holder said, and I quote, In New York, people are buried in the snow. Here our flowers are blooming and our oranges are about to bear. Let's hold a festival to tell the world about our paradise. And so the parade was born. Carriages covered in flowers, foot races, tug-of-war, and polo matches were all part of the original festivities. The parade was named when the professor saw all of the flowers. Over time, it grew with marching bands and motorized floats replacing the horse-drawn carriages. By 1895, the Pasadena Tournament of Roses Association was formed because the event had gotten so big. The football game that goes with it didn't come along until 1902, and it came along to help fund the parade. Just a little background on that tradition. Certain kinds of food figure into our New Year's traditions as well. Food is basically a part of everything, after all. Black-eyed peas are common as symbols of wealth. Leafy greens represent money, cash primarily, given the green appearance. Cornbread, symbolic of gold or coins, pretty much has to go along with the peas and greens. Pork is a symbol of prosperity, and it has something to do with pigs rooting forward with their snouts, which is apparently a sign of you moving forward in the year. Something like that. Other cultures have different ones, but those are what we tend to have. Don't eat seafood, though. Apparently, lobster is bad because they can swim backwards, so you'll be faced with setbacks. Chicken, too, because they can scratch backwards. And apparently that little flightless bird could be symbolic of your money flying away. Honestly, that about the lobsters and chickens was new to me. And as much as I think it's kind of odd, I can't deny I eat my greens, pork, beans, and cornbread every year. Landing on the adorable side of the line are the New Year's babies. Some hospitals actually give out little prizes for the first baby born in a new year. Usually, if not always relating to baby needs. Things like formula, blankets, diapers, and gift certificates for baby items, usually donated by local businesses. I mean, it's not a rebirth or a renewal, since it's new birth, unless you believe in reincarnation, of course, but it is cute. I think that about covers it. I'm sure there are other traditions people embrace, and I'd love to hear about them. Drop a comment over on social media if you want to add to this topic. Now let's look at what connections we can make. The date itself, of course, has very limited connections. In fact, only the United States and Rome have January 1st celebrations. 
The others we looked at were found in March, with the vernal equinox and beginning of spring being involved. Which, as I've noted before, does make a bit of sense given the nature of winter's transition into the new life of spring. A very common connection in these celebrations relating to renewal and rebirth is the idea of sending away the bad and inviting the good as one year transitions into another, setting the stage for the new year. With the ancient Babylonians and Greeks, we didn't see much in the way of a formal New Year's celebration in that regard. In ancient Rome, they had several traditions, with the whole idea geared towards setting the stage for the new year. To the idea of renewal, one year ending and another beginning was a very symbolic moment. Naturally, everyone wanted a positive new year, regardless of how good or bad the previous one had been. For the Romans, this included offerings to the god Janus for good fortune. Neighbors and friends wished each other well and gave small gifts of figs and honey. And they worked because idleness was considered a bad omen. The Chinese New Year also utilizes traditions for this purpose. Various foods are eaten based on symbolism. Things like long life and luck are among the ideas behind these food choices. The number eight is also significant as it symbolizes good fortune, and thus eight dishes or courses are served. There's also the lion dance troops with the dance meant to bring good luck. We also saw the red envelopes, primarily for younger members of the family, to suppress aging and challenges in the new year. Then there's the tradition of throwing out trash on the sixth day of the celebrations, symbolic of throwing out the hardships of the previous year. The whole celebration is just packed full of symbolism. In Nauru's, we found the idea of spring cleaning taking place leading up to the day. Starting the year with a clean home is seen as a good way to begin the year. There's also the inclusion of half-sin with the seven symbolic items on the table, all beginning with the 15th letter of the Persian alphabet. What we saw in Holy was an overall sense of moving forward and looking for a sense of harmony, forgiving the mistakes of others, as well as letting go of your own, the paying and forgiving of debts, all in order to enter the new year with a clean slate. In the case of our New Year celebrations, one tradition is the symbolism in food. While not quite to the extent seen in the Chinese New Year, we do have those few symbolic foods of our own. Black-eyed peas, leafy greens, pork, and cornbread. We even have foods like chicken and lobster that are considered negative symbolically. And while not quite the same, the food symbolism does connect to the Nauru's half-sin, primarily different in that those items are placed on a table rather than cooked and served as a meal, but still, we have significant food items. One thing we have that actually runs somewhat counter to ancient Rome is that New Year's Day isn't seen as a day to work. Some people certainly do, but the idea that idleness is a bad omen for the coming year really just isn't there. We do certainly wish each other well, in a way, by saying Happy New Year at midnight and throughout the day. That kind of thing seems a fairly universal part of New Year's celebrations, just in different forms. Now, the form these celebrations take also tend to have some common ideas. The Babylonian festival Akitu had some traditions pretty unique to it, like the king submitting himself to a priest playing the role of the god Marduk 
and a symbolic renewal of the state. But also a part of these festivities was a kind of parade where the statues of the gods were removed from the temple and paraded in the street for all to see. The Chinese New Year started a pretty big tradition when they were actually the first to use fireworks for the celebration following the invention of gunpowder in the 10th century CE. There had already been the use of firecrackers in keeping with the story of the neon, but at this point the larger and more grand spectacles began to emerge. Some Chinese New Year's festivals also have parades depending on the location. And of course, there's the beautiful Lantern Festival to close out their New Year celebrations. In India, Holi also brings out quite the show. First there's the bonfires, symbolic of Holika's burning. Around these, people sing and dance, sometimes performing the parikrama of fire. The next morning brings a more vibrant display with the colors, people targeting each other with colors all across the spectrum until everyone looks like a grand, painted canvas. And of course, there's more singing and dancing. They all seem different, but there's similarities to be found and tied into ours. Fireworks, of course, are a big one. And while we don't use color the way people do during Holi, our fireworks shows are often grand displays with all sorts of colors, shapes, and patterns. With very symbolic meaning, the color red features in the Chinese New Year quite prominently. Here in the United States, it's not uncommon to see combinations of black, gold, and silver, though much like holy, the colors used to celebrate really are all over the spectrum. In the United States, we have the Rose Parade as an annual New Year's tradition, another total explosion of color. While of a very different nature, Akitu had their parade as well, and incorporated into the Rose Parade, you find influences from all over the world, including the Chinese New Year. It's no lion dance, but an incredible display of a different kind. Singing and dancing features with us as well. There's the music at midnight, the singing of Auld Lang Syne, and dancing that varies depending on the celebration you're at. Sometimes more elegant, sometimes perhaps partying in a club, wherever you happen to be. But also consider the New Year's Eve shows. A whole variety of singers and bands join up to perform for hours leading up to midnight, and some continue on afterwards. It's all a big show to send off the previous year and welcome the new one. Over in the renewal and rebirth theme we started with, there's other connections to be made. Akitu centered on the renewal of the state as well as that of the natural world. In ancient Greece, we looked at the story of Persephone, taken by Hades and then tricked into staying with him for three to six months per year, depending on which version of the myth. A cycle akin to death and rebirth. Likewise on Earth, the months that Persephone was gone aligned with winter, when her mother Demeter was saddened that Persephone was trapped and the world died, in a sense, and her return was when spring brought new life. Roman mythology had their equivalents to the story as well. They also had the sacred fire of Vesta, the eternal flame representing eternal Rome, and the protection of the goddess Vesta. Each year, on the original New Year's Day in March, the fire was in some way renewed and was symbolic of a renewal of Rome itself. In Taoism, there's the idea that the universe is constantly recreating itself. 
a constant state of renewal in a way. Energy, called chi, is constantly in a state of renewal and rebirth as it transitions into new life and then back into its diluted form when that life dies. The goal for practitioners of Taoism is to bring the three treasures, qi, jing, and shen, into balance in order to attain a possible rebirth into a kind of immortal life. In Nauru's, the origins were centered around the vernal equinox and the renewal and rebirth that comes with spring. The story of King Jamshid directly linked into this when he, having destroyed the world in his battle with demons, also brought life back when he ascended on his jeweled throne. Life was renewed and reborn, again aligning with the transition from winter to spring. Of course, we observe and mark the changes of the seasons, though not necessarily with big celebrations like Akitu, though we certainly have some traditions involving the coming of spring, like Groundhog's Day, for example. Spring is right around the corner, or six more weeks of winter. I can never remember which one is when he sees his shadow. And of course, people start gearing up for tending yards and gardens. For us, this transition seems to be more like just a part of life with some annual traditions rather than a specific celebration. Fire plays into this too, though not as an eternal flame. Rather, it's used to burn away the old dead foliage to make room for the new sometimes in the form of a controlled burn in an entire area, in order to start anew, though we certainly have to be very careful with those. Taoism's connection to ours comes from a different angle, and, being religious in nature, it's not one that's universal across the United States. Some religions, such as Christianity, have, in them, a promise of eternal life. Baptism is a symbolic rebirth as part of the journey to that life though what you are reborn into is said to depend on what you do in this life. You can be reborn into hell or into heaven. Not quite the same as the Taoist beliefs, but not entirely different either. Both are a rebirth into an immortal life. Though, in a sense, in Christianity and other similar religions, the immortal life is guaranteed, the only difference is where you go, whereas in Taoism, the immortal life itself is not guaranteed. Finally, let's look at the phoenix. Now remember, there wasn't one in India. In the ancient world of Greece, Rome, and Egypt, we saw a phoenix similar to the one we know today. Always long-lived, sources varied on just how long. For some it was 500 years, others it was a thousand. It appeared, died, and was reborn, and the new body carried the so-called parent body off to Heliopolis in Egypt. Not until the 4th century CE did we find a phoenix that actually burned and was reborn from the ashes. And that's thanks to the poet Claudian. In China, we found Feng Huang, the so-called Chinese phoenix. Long-lived, but not reborn in fire. Rather, it would appear during peace at the coming of a new era, renewal and rebirth of the people, but not the bird itself. For our purposes, the most common phoenix is the version that bursts into flame and is reborn from the ashes. It appears in countless movies, books, and other media. Depictions vary widely, though the most common versions I've seen tend to have colors reminiscent of flame and some reminiscent of grandeur and royalty. 
kind of a mix of the ancient phoenix and fengwang. Even the type of bird varies. Some are similar to the eagle we saw in the ancient world. Some are larger birds, some are smaller birds. I've seen quite a few designs even styled like the peacock. Variations beyond imagination. But for us, the idea of the bird bursting into flame and being reborn has become a fairly universal trait for the phoenix. Really, it is quite the fascinating mythological creature. Well, turns out this theme was more about New Year's than I planned. That's okay, though. Sometimes when we get a little off track, the best thing to do is roll with it and see what we can learn. Hopefully you still enjoyed our slightly, or maybe not so slightly, derailed theme. And plus, you know, that means there's more to learn about renewal and rebirth in the future. Next month, we're jumping to a whole new theme. And I promise I'll keep that one on track. <laughs> keep an eye out for the announcement. Until then, take care. Mm -hmm.